Um, if you guys want to go ahead and uh, get your Bibles out, we'll go ahead and move on into the Word this morning. And uh, you can go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. <clears throat> Thanks so much, Tandy. We're really excited about um, that, uh, what God's put on your heart to care for the orphans. As James says, that's pure and undefiled religion. So we're praising God for what he's doing in your life um, in this service project. Let's go ahead and pray as we get into um, the word. Lord God, um, this is your church. As you in Matthew 16 say, this is my church, and, uh, and I will build it. And so, Lord, um, this church here, um, this group of people, not a building, but the people, Lord, we are yours we love you, Lord. This is not Rory's church or the elders' church or the, the greatest tithers' churches. Lord, this is Jesus' church, your bride. And we pray that as we continue to dive in and, and uh, just cry out for a passion for your bride, that you would give us just that. Um, Lord, as we look at uh, yet another duty, uh, um, a privilege that we have in being part of this church, would you, by your spirit, speak to us in a way that no man ever could? Lord, that eyes wouldn't be on Rory, but we'd be on uh, you, Lord, as you tell us your design, your plan for your body. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I remember uh, my grandpa Buck, my dad's dad, is quite the jokester. In fact, he uh, sits down in his chair with an old school tape recorder and he will record his favorite jokes to mail to me. And uh, as he's in his 90s now, there's times that he picks up his remote control and speaks into his remote control and uh, uses his tape recorder to try to turn the channels as he thinks of a joke. So, um, so I got to give him a little props and tell a little joke uh, that he used to tell me as a kid. Uh, he says, one summer day in early colonial America, the oldest of three brothers thought it'd be a great joke to push the family's outhouse over and down the adjacent hill. Soon the father, finding out about their toilet's relocation, lines the brothers up to find the culprit. Beginning with the youngest, the fathers drilled the boys to discover who was the mischievous one. Finally, the oldest brother spoke up and said, Father, I cannot tell a lie. It was I. And the father said, Son, thank you for being honest. Uh, now go get a switch from the tree and you'll get the correction coming to you. But father, the son protested, don't you recall that even George Washington cut down his father's cherry tree and you never, never hear of him getting a spanking? This may be true, son, the father said. But George Washington's father wasn't in the cherry tree when he cut it down. Good job, Grandpa Buck. Uh, the local church is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In obedience to scripture, they organize under qualified leadership, gather regularly for preaching and worship, observe the biblical sacraments of communion and baptism, are unified by the Spirit, and are disciplined for holiness. They scatter to fulfill the Great Commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. And so the, t the topic we come upon uh, in our seventh week in the church series, with two more weeks to go, uh, is that we are disciplined for holiness within the church. We occasionally get that spanking, that time of correction from the Lord. 
Uh, in the last seven weeks, we've asked the question, what is your obligation to the local congregation, to the local church? Uh, and that was based upon two premises. Number one, you guys know it, that you are a born-again Christian. Secondly, that you consider this to be your home church, Calvary Chapel of Crook County. What is your obligation to the local congregation? And in the past weeks, we've seen, um, first of all, that we have the obligation to be our brother's keeper. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, that we would consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, that we would incite Christian living in one another. Secondly, we saw that we have the duty, the responsibility to attend the regular meetings of the local church, not just Sunday, but throughout the week, uh, sometimes even daily. Uh, thirdly, we see that we have the duty to steward our gift within the local body that God has given us, serving for the edification of the church and to display Christ, bringing him glory. And last week we saw we have the responsibility to steward not only our gifts, but our finances and our resources generously within the local body. So uh, in all of my studying, uh, finally coming to this duty of um, that we have the obligation to be disciplined towards holiness and to be a part of disciplining others towards holiness, I found that this almost goes hand in hand with our first duty, our first obligation in being our brother's keeper. And so let me say it one more time. You have the obligation here at this church to be disciplined, to be discipled, uh, to be taught towards holiness and to be part of disciplining others towards holiness as well. This is a very relevant issue within the church. And we've, I've even been praying in my studying that God would give us tears and sorrow to mourn over our own sinfulness and selfishness and wretchedness as we consider the concept of disciplining ourselves and others. Uh, church discipline is one of the most misunderstood and yet most desperately needed ministries within the church. We do not believe that it's an optional ministry of the church, but it, it's, it's a requirement of us that we find in Scripture. Sadly, what most people, and probably you and myself included, think of when we hear of church discipline is that word excommunication, which is simply the final stage in a church discipline process. Uh, church discipline, if done right and done biblically, should never have to come down to the excommunication stage. But by the grace of God, we would stay far, far away from that uh, word even. Excommunication is what happens when discipline fails to result in repentance and reconciliation. This misunderstanding plagues most discussion concerning church discipline and practices of church discipline. It sometimes can sabotage the grace of God and his gracious use of discipline and correction and chastening within the church. Now, church discipline is first and foremost discipling. It's teaching. It's being a disciple. In fact, that would be the root word of discipline. Jesus means for us to live a life of discipline as disciples, as he says that no one can be my disciple unless he counts the cost, unless he carries his cross and daily takes up his cross and follows me. Jonathan Lehman was a great source for me this week. He asked the question in his book, Church Discipline, How the Church Protects the Name of Jesus, which gospel do you believe in? 
All right, I'm going to ask that again. Which gospel do you believe in? Your answer to this question will have a direct bearing on what you think about church discipline. Therefore, it's worth making sure we're talking about the same gospel before we talk about anything else. There, and I'm going to present to you two subtly different gospels or versions of the gospel. The first one will probably shut down every talk that we would have about church discipline. We would never talk of church discipline. We would never use church discipline in any capacity. While the second version would probably start the conversation of church discipline and get it going. So, gospel number one. God is holy. We have all sinned, separating us from God. But God sent his son to die on the cross and rise again so that we might be forgiven. Everyone who believes in Jesus can have eternal life. We're not justified by works. We're justified by faith alone. The gospel, therefore, calls all people to just believe. An unconditionally loving God will take you as you are. Okay, so that's gospel number one. Sounds pretty good, right? Gospel number two. God is holy. We have all sinned, separating us from God. But God sent his son to die on the cross and rise again so that we might be forgiven and begin to follow the son as king and Lord. Anyone who repents and believes can have eternal life, a life which begins today and stretches into eternity. We're not justified by works. We're justified by faith alone. But the faith which works is never alone. The gospel, therefore, calls all people to repent and believe. A contra-conditionally loving God, real quick, let me explain that. A contra-conditional loving God is when God says, I love you because I delight in my son who graciously fulfills all of the conditions for salvation. That's different than an unconditional love, which many of us have preached, an agape, and we love agape, unconditional love. But um, that would just say, God would say, no matter what, I'll always love you. And then we see deeper in the scriptures, a contra-conditional love, where he says, no matter what, I'll always love you, but not because of you, but because of what my son has done. I see his obedience, his perfection. That's what's called the contra-conditional love. This love will take you contrary to what you deserve and then enable you by the power of the Holy Spirit to become holy and obedient like his son. By reconciling you to himself, God also reconciles you to his family, the church, and enables you as his people to represent together his own holy character and triune glory. So what do you think? Which of these two Gospels better characterizes what you believe based on what the Bible teaches? All right. Um, the first version of the Gospel emphasizes Christ as Savior. The second version of the Gospel emphasizes Christ as Savior and also as Lord. As Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, he has made Jesus both Christ and Savior. Lord and Savior. Christ and Curios. The first version of the gospel points to the new covenant work of forgiveness. The second version includes that, but also the Spirit's new covenant work of regeneration in our life. 
The first version points to the new status that Christians have as children of God. The second version of the gospel points to the Christian's reconciliation with Christ and Christ's people. See this in the New Testament. So if your understanding of the gospel stops with the first version, you'll not have much use for the topic of church discipline or um, for this study today. But if you embrace the second one, you have a longer conversation now on sanctification, Christian family life. And that aside from being just a biblical mandate, church discipline is an implication of this wide gospel, this beautiful gospel that we see stretching throughout the whole New Testament. It's more of a robust account of the biblical gospel, one man, one preacher said. So, church discipline. Should we practice church discipline? Uh, it's, it's our understanding as shepherds over this church that yes, we should. First of all, because it is loving. All right, church discipline is loving to the individual who's in sin, that he or she might be warned and brought to repentance. So there I told you to turn to Hebrews 3.12, where it says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. So we see there's an end game. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart in the rebellion. So we see from Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 through 15 that most often discipline occurs informally and in a private setting. A brother or a sister in Christ would sin, and then another brother or sister who sees that would lovingly and gently bring that up in conversation, uh, lovingly and quietly addressing the matter. Small, quick, short accounts with one another, keeping each other in check, keeping each other in line. Now, discipleship exists in part uh, because Christians are prone to what's called self-deceit. Yes, even as Christians, we're prone to self-deception. And that's why the apostles write again and again and again that Christians need to not be deceived. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Galatians 6, 7, James 1, 6. We're constantly warned to not be deceived. Let no one deceive himself, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, we're told in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. And so it's easy to say that we have no sin, John tells us. And in that, we deceive ourselves. Even our very desires are deceitful, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 says. And so because we are prone uh, on this side of eternity towards self-deceit, we need each other. We need to be discipled and we need discipline because we're prone to self-deception. Within our core groups as, as men, uh, probably uh, five different groups that meet with guys. If you're not in one, please talk to me. I want to plug you into one of these beautiful core groups. Just awesome times of fellowship and friendship. We've coined the term uh, in these groups that we check each other's blind spots. 
We check each other's blind spots. Similar to if you're driving down the freeway and you're about to merge into the next lane. You can check your mirror and then you could turn over, but more often than not, there's somebody there and you run them off the road, right? Resulting in mass car pileup and you know, millions of deaths, basically. It's the butterfly effect. Um, but if you turn your head and you look and check your blind spot, there's safety in that. It's definitely recommended. And so uh, we check each other's blind spots within these times of discipleship. Uh, John Piper said that eternal security is a community project. To know that we'll make it to the end, as we just read in in Hebrews chapter 3, if we hold fast to Christ for how long? Just during that Billy Graham crusade, if you could just make it down there and raise your hand, then that's it for the rest. We hold fast to the end. The whole book of Hebrews is about that. Continuing on to the end. Don't being deceived. Don't fall away. Don't be an apostate. And so eternal security is a community project that we have each other. We gather together. We check each other's blind spots. And just short, quick, loving, just, hey, have you thought about this? Or, you know, the word says this. And in friendship and loving community, we have that for each other. And if you don't have that, you need that. Get in that. Talk to me, Rory. I don't have that. What's up? I prob- Maybe I've been failing you as a shepherd and setting that up for you. We need that. I need that. And I have that in this church. We all need that. John Lehman said the solution to fighting self-deception is to invite discipline into your life. Get those coaches around you so that you can be that prize fighter. Ask for correction. Welcome rebuke in your life. This is the way of humility and wisdom. Local churches exist in part to protect us from ourselves. It's the brothers and sisters around us who love us and are committed to our good that help us to see things that we cannot see about ourselves. We are not the world's experts on us. God is the expert on us. He's given us his word and he says we need each other. One of our elders here at the church often says, as we're having conversations with people, he says, do you think that you're the most objective person in this situation? You know, in this situation, this decision that you're making or this, this, uh, you know, um, this thing, it's controversial. It's great. Are you the most objective person in this? Do you have brothers around you, wise counsel, people that can speak truth and wisdom and scripture into your life? Because I'll tell you, even as Rory Rogers, a pastor, if I am left to my own devices to be all by myself, even with the word and with prayer, There will be decisions that come along. There will be temptations that come along. And if I'm left to my own devices, the majority of the time, I'm going to do what I want to do. So that's why we have community. That's why God has set that up. God himself is a communal God. Proverbs 18.1 says, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire, and he rages against wise judgment. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Proverbs 12.1 says, Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. <laughs> All right, so some strong wisdom from the wisest man that lived besides Jesus. As we continue on in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11, we read more on discipline. He says, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You've not yet resisted in bloodshed, striving against sin. 
And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. This is Proverbs 3.12 quoted. Nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So a basic rule of Bible interpretation and inductive Bible study is you want to look for repeated words. There's big themes as words are repeated. Did you guys notice any repeated words in that scripture portion? Often the word son was used. Often the word father was used. Often the term correction or chastening was used. And and the example is that of our human fathers that we have. As the King James Version says, if you are not partaker of some kind of discipline within the church, then you are illegitimate, or King James Version, you are a bastard and not a son. And the third century golden tongue preacher Chrysostom says, since then... Not to be chastised is a mark of bastardy. We ought not to refuse, but rejoice in chastisement as a mark of our genuine sonship. Okay, so being part of the local church, being a born-again Christian, will have that uh, regular occurrence on some degree of just being confronted. Just even in a message, you're going to be confronted as the word goes forth and the gospel confronts our worldviews. And we are challenged to back everything up with scripture and the whole meta narrative of scripture, Genesis through Revelation. We are confronted and it is beautiful. It is an evidence that we are not illegitimate, but that we have a father, a father who has given us brothers and sisters to help us along. In verse 9 of Hebrews chapter, what were we, chapter 12, says, furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? This is known as the argument of the lesser to the greater. All right. So here in a lesser sense, in the flesh, he's given us fathers as a picture of who he is as a father. They discipline us. They use the rod of correction, a very biblical thing. They rebuke us. You know, um, they drive foolishness far from us in love and in gentleness. Uh, they don't provoke us to wrath, but they bring us up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Ephesians chapter six tells us, and that promotes a respect and obedience uh, in the child. And so if that happens here on, in the fleshly side of things, certainly it happens to our true and better father, uh, our, uh, God the Father, the argument of the lesser to the greater. Verse 10, for these uh, earthly fathers indeed for a few days chastised us or chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Uh, so again, this earthly father, they would discipline us and they would sometimes sin in the way they would discipline us. Uh, they would do it for the wrong motives. You know, you embarrassed me at that party of the other night when you did that, you know, or you're grounded for a month and a half or something like that. But our God does it in a pure and right way. 100% of the time for our profit, correction, church discipline, chastening, admonition, confrontation is for our profit 
underline it, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, this isn't pleasant, right? Neither was it when our dads and our moms chastened it. The Phillips translation says, obviously, no chastening seems pleasant at the time. It is, in fact, most unpleasant. Can I get an amen, right? No, it's been a while since many of you have been rebuked, so you might not remember. But, um, and he goes on to say, though it's unpleasant, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. I want you to underline two phrases. This all is that we may be partakers of his holiness, and afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Okay? So, not only is church discipline loving to the individual, but it's loving, and the reason that we do it in this church is because it's loving to Jesus and to his holy name, that his dignity might be upheld and obeyed. Holiness and righteousness are the issue here in church discipline. Discipline is unpleasant, but in the end, it produces holy people who are distinguished from the world. They're known as the church. And in Peter, he quotes Jesus, 1 Peter chapter 1.16, and he says, Be holy, Jesus says. For what? <clears throat> I am holy. Holiness is key. All right? We're not just doing church discipline so that we can just, you know, um, afflict each other, right? There's no fun in just afflicting one another. I mean, maybe weird stuff happens, but um, it's so that we might emulate Jesus and bring him glory. Be holy, Jesus says, as I am holy. As Charles Spurgeon says, where faith leads the way, virtue follows in a godly train, in a goodly train, excuse me. So where faith leads the way, we're saved by grace through faith, right? All of the virtues, the beautiful purities of Christianity follow in a goodly train. Verse 7 of Hebrews 12 says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Oh, did I talk? Whoa, what happened? I'm sorry. Technological error if you don't mind. Um, not only did Peter quote that holiness was important, be holy for I am holy. Let's just pretend that never happened. John seems to be obsessed with God's association of love equals obedience. All right. John the apostle, the youngest, what's believed not, the youngest of the apostles, this guy who was Jesus's favorite disciple, he would always say in the gospel of John, um, he was obsessed with God's uh, association of love and obedience. Just real quickly, in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus says. John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. First John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So Christians, if you love Jesus, it will equal obedience to his word. Whenever we come to a preaching time or a home fellowship group or a core group and we read the word, we challenge each other and we draw a line in the sand and we say, do you choose to obey God's word or yourself? Are you about the kingdom of God or are you about the kingdom of self? All right. We just want you to know you're choosing self here. You're not choosing God. 
It's a dangerous place to be as this, as this uh, line is drawn in the sand and you would choose self, you would choose sin, you would ch- choose your own ways rather than God's revealed ways. In Titus chapter 2 verse 14, Paul says, He who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. So why have we been saved? That we might be purified, we'd be his own special people, we would see the lion in the sand and we would say, count me in on this side. I want to be zealous for good works, that I could be a picture of Jesus in this world. Charles Spurgeon says, salvation in sin is not possible. It always must be salvation from sin. As well speak of liberty, while yet the irons are, uh, might as well speak of liberty, while yet the irons are upon a man's wrists, or boast of healing while the disease waxes worse and worse, or glory and victory when the army is on the point of surrendering, as to dream, is as to dream of salvation in Christ, while the sinner continues to give full swing to his evil passions. Grace and holiness are as inseparable as light and the heat of the sun. True faith in Jesus in every case leads to an abhorrence of every false way and a perseverance in the paths of holiness even unto the end. As Tolok says, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of holiness is to be enjoyed in peace after the conflict. All right. So discipline, not fun, chastening hard. All right. We're confronted with our worldview, which often is on a path towards self-deception. We're confronted in it. But as we are walking in humility and repentance every day, uh, we will find the fruit of righteousness and holiness being enjoyed in peace after the conflict. Tertullian, an early church father, wrote in his book, Patience, he says, Oh, happy the servant for whose improvement the Lord is earnest, with whom he deems to be angry, whom he does not deceive by dissembling admonition, withholding admonition, and leading a man to think he needs it not. All right, the Lord is so good to us by bringing correction because we need it. Now, we're going to look at a few different examples of church discipline in the New Testament. And we start with Jesus preaching on church discipline. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, hopefully your mind went right there. Hey, I know Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained a brother. All right, now, if you have your pen on you, underline, you have gained your brother. That is the whole purpose of church discipline. Not to get stuff off your chest or make someone look foolish or prove your point, but to gain your brother, to restore the friendship and the fellowship that we have in Christ that was divided by sin. Verse 16 goes on to say, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen or a tax collector. So there's this four-step process here that Jesus um, says church discipline is to look like. Now, interesting, later on when we get to Paul's example in 1 Corinthians 5, it's different. Uh, It's a different 
process, okay? So that leads us to say, in certain situations, Matthew 18 is the more prudent step in others that are more dangerous and not just little sins against brothers. They're more dangerous sins, more blatantly obvious sins, more public sins. Um, There's a more drastic approach that's taken. Um, But by all appearances, the individual in Matthew 18 um, is a person who loves the sin more than they love Jesus, and their character of unrepentance leads us to no longer having normal, casual fellowship with that believer. Uh, so from now on, uh, when that fourth step happens, there's been no repentance, there's been the one-on-one approach, uh, the two or three more people going, that every word would be established, they won't uh, hear that, you tell it to the church. Uh, now that can either be the church elders or the whole congregation, and that really depends, and some people have different views. Um, if, if you've been here long, you know that we've had full church meetings regarding church discipline, um, but if they refuse to hear the church's pleadings, let them be like a heathen and a tax collector. So in one sense, that final step of releasing them, excommunicating them, it's a time where you no longer just have normal, casual fellowship, come up and take communion together, pat them on the back, and act like everything is okay. Uh, When we see them now, we warn them as brothers that they're acting as enemies of the cross, and until they repent, we cannot pretend to be in fellowship with them. And so our interactions are now characterized not by casualness, but by deliberate conversations about their sin and their need of repentance. This aspect of church Discipline consists of a public statement that we can no longer vouch for a person's individual citizenship in heaven because their actions are contrary, unrepentantly, uh, contrary towards uh, the cross of Christ. Um, One man said, excommunication is a church's declaration that it can no longer affirm that the individual is a Christian. Uh, And later on in Jesus' gospel account, he goes on to say, Assuredly, I say to you, when that time comes uh, and and excommunication has to take place, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is the context of these passages. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, where two or three are gathered together in my name. I am there in the midst of them. So we've all used those scriptures, right? And often and we say them at the prayer meeting, hey, wherever two or three are gathered. But what's the context? The context text is in a really difficult time of church discipline, an unrepentant brother. There's a lot of grief going on. There's a lot of pleading. There's a lot of tears. There's a lot of late night searching the scriptures to see if this is, this is sin. This is blatant. This is unrepentant. Um, you know, this is tough. And, and when it happens, two or three gathered together for the subject of church discipline and the releasing of this brother, um, Jesus is there. Jesus is there in the midst of the hard times. Now, Jesus says in John chapter 17, 15, I don't pray, and and Jesus is praying, I don't pray that you should take Christians out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So, uh, Jesus' heart for us is that instead of living in the world, um, completely in the world and being of the world and being consumed and overtaken by sin, uh, he wants us to be in the world, but not of the world. Uh, He doesn't want us to be so far removed that we have no gospel mission to a dark and dying world. But he wants us to be salt and light within the world. And yet, at the same time, not so deep within the world that we begin to act and behave like the world. And so that's what was happening in Corinth, which will move us to our next scripture. Uh, Corinth was really in, uh, Corinth was a moral cesspool. 
It was hard to escape from the tentacles of perverse immorality that was going on there. Um, and so the idea here in First Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, is we have Paul's example of church discipline in a city that's much like Las Vegas, Sin City, you know, um, the term Corinthian girl, speaking of a prostitute or a harlot, comes from obviously Corinth, and there was a church there that was, was uh, having sexual immorality take place within it. As you read here in 1 Corinthians 5.1, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality is not easy, it's not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. All right, so there's perverse city, right? Um, and, and there's the situation where a, a young man or a man is sleeping and having sexual relations with his stepmom. And, uh, and what is said here is, okay, not only does the Torah forbid this illicit union in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, but Roman law even forbid it, as Cicero says, um, that this account of sexual sin is absolutely abhorrent. Um, even in Corinth, where you could do anything, the line was crossed in this, all right? So this is happening within a church, within a perverse city, and even the city is saying, that's just wrong, all right? And uh, Lenski says, these things are not naturally abhorrent, are, are naturally abhorrent. One doesn't need Christianity to repudiate them. Even if you're not a Christian, what's going on here is absolutely disgusting. And so Paul goes on to discipline this account and even discipline the church for their poor handling of this account of sin. And it's the third reason we do church discipline in that it's loving not only to the individual, it's loving to Jesus as we already looked at, but now it's loving to discipline. It's loving towards a watching world that they might see Christ's transforming power. In verse two of 1 Corinthians 5, it says, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. And so the Corinthian church, you know, was, was kind of emergent. You know, they were saying, hey, aren't we just so gracious and arms wide open in welcoming this individual in? And, you know, dad and mom and son are all sitting together in church and got this love triangle going on. And it's okay. They were accepting this immorality, something that was grossly immoral. Even the world would tell them that. And they're rebuked by Paul. You guys are prideful about this. You should be grieving and mourning right now. This guy needs to be taken out from among you. You know, some think that Christians can do anything they want with whoever they want, anytime they want. That is not the case. That is not biblical. And Paul gets down to that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As Alistair Begg says, any church that doesn't confront sin that it knows is within its ranks totters on the brink of spiritual extinction. The Bible says it and history confirms it. You know, the prophets in the Old Testament would often, and, and the priests, as Jeremiah 6, 13 tells us, they would say, peace, peace, all is okay in the midst of your sexual immorality and child sacrifice and idol worship. Peace, peace, all is okay. Come into the temple and give Yahweh a little bit of worship. When in fact, it wasn't peace, peace. They were on the brink of judgment. They were on the brink of being taken over by the Babylonians. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 23 Jesus writes a scathing letter to the church in Thyatira who is compromising. And he warns them and rebukes them of this toleration of sin. And so Paul tells us that tolerating sin within the church ranks 
it's sinful. It's sinful in and of itself. He goes on to say, for I indeed, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who's so done this deed. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his soul might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So, we've got this radically powerful, intense passage on church discipline where Paul actually says, hand this churchgoer over to Satan. All right? Now, I'm sure if I would have preached that, you guys would have gotten up and left. Like, what kind of a... Okay, this is scripture. This isn't Rory's agenda. This is God's inspired word uh, through Paul's hand here. All right? Uh, And he says, hand this guy over into the world hand him over to the ruler of the world. He wants sin, let him have the ruler of sin if he wants it so bad. And this is where God's sovereignty just comes completely into play, that God can use Satan to sanctify. All right, only God can do that. Use our arch enemy as a tool to save and to sanctify his people. Now, oftentimes we think that this is just simply as, uh, as simple as putting a person out of our covenant community here at the church, uh, that that's handing them over to Satan, just saying, you can't come back to Sunday until you repent, and that that's handing them over to Satan. But it seems to be a little bit deeper at the end of verse 4, when Paul says, by the Holy Spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus. It appears he's telling us something more is happening, something that takes the power of Jesus to perform, something that Jesus would say in Matthew 18, when you do this, I'm there with you. I'm there with you in power to discipline. Uh, and so um, Paul actually did this another time in his ministry. You read of it in First Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, when he says, Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I'm delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So in this group of men that Paul was around, they were blaspheming God, no doubt had had been corrected on it, and they refused to repent. And so he just delivers them over to Satan. The only other times that we see that in scriptures in the book of Job, when God hands Job over to Satan for Job to do what he wishes to him, not touch his flesh until he finally gives him permission, Uh, in a sense, chastening Job and purifying Job and refining Job. Um, Behold, I hand Job over to you, only spare his life. All right? So, church discipline, handing him over to Satan, tough language, powerful language, is for the good of the person. It's in love for the person. It's for the good of the church. It's for the glory of Christ. By our toleration of their sin, we may usher them into hell. But by our speaking and confronting their sin and pleading with them with tears to repent because we love them, we may actually bring them into heaven through the church discipline process. Handing them over to Satan is twofold purpose here. For the good of the individual... Uh, that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord, his flesh may be destroyed, um, but his soul would be saved. Now, the NIV translates it, uh, and, and the way that you read it, it seems that this person's out there sinning now, and he's left the church, he's, he's made his choice in a sense, and that he's out there, and all of a sudden, 
he snaps into it. Kind of prodigal son type, right? Eating at the troughs with the pigs and, what the heck am I doing? I don't have to be doing this. I'm missing it out on fellowship. And that could be what is taking place. That could be what Paul is speaking of. Or it could be that these people actually are handed over to Satan, that their flesh dies. That these people die and in their death, they might die. They might miss out on great times of fellowship and having their gifts being used and building up treasures in heaven. But in their death, they're saved. Uh, we have 1 Corinthians 11.30 that people that were in sin, even at the communion table, many were weak and sick and many had died because of their sin at the communion table. Uh, the, the early church account of Ananias and Sapphira, you know, uh, lying to the Holy Spirit in the way that they gave their resources and held back their resources. Their sin left them useless in ministry. They lost all hope of reward, and it was better that they would just die and arrive in heaven as a shipwrecked sailor. They would arrive nonetheless, all right? So interesting passages, a few different ideas on what that means of their flesh being destroyed, but their soul being saved. Now, if you wrestle so far with everything that I'm saying and you think church discipline shouldn't even be done, it shows how much you've drunk in the world's view, the spirit of our age, that we don't hold to any absolutes in the world anymore, that truth is, not, truth is relevant to situations. Whereas we here at Calvary Chapel, we stand on the word of God, that God is holy. His character is displayed in the church. His love is displayed in the church. His holiness is displayed in the church. And so we lovingly chisel away sin uh, from each other's lives. And this goes for me too. I'm not the one that stands up here and, well, you know, come on up here. We're gonna. That's not the game we play here. And I am corrected. You guys be encouraged. Rory Rogers is corrected in this church. He is challenged. He is confronted. It happens. We have great elders in this body. And I invite my core group as well. You guys look into my life and you speak truth into my life because I want to continue on to the end. Paul says that this is a test, as we're going to read in just a second. Church discipline is a test to see how sincere we are as a church about finishing strong. It's not fun and it's hard, but it's vital. Biblical brokenness submits to the painful, risky, time-consuming, often oppressive process of church discipline. And the Bible proclaims it. History proves that an unbeliever or excuse me, unbelievers are drawn more effectively among believers who have radically different lives than that of the world. If an unbeliever comes in here and sits down and sees us just like the world, they say, I told you there was nothing powerful about this Jesus guy. They look exactly like I do on the weekend or on my vacations, all right? But I come in here, I want to see something different. I want to see the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in our midst. And as we discipline each other towards holiness, the non-Christians see just that. And so church discipline is love even to a world, uh, a lost world, that they might see a holy, loving, powerful God. Verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. 
For indeed, Christ, our Passover lamb, was sanctified for us. And the example from Passover of leaven, and leaven is, is the sour in the sourdough bread. It's the yeast that spreads like cancer. One little drop of leaven, we're going to read, leavens the whole lump so quickly. You can't draw a line and say, only pass this far in the lump. It'll leaven the entire lump. And so the idea is taken from Passover, where the people would scour their house to clean out any crumb of leaven because it would spread in their dough. And it was a picture all throughout scripture of sin spreading. And so they're told, get rid of leaven, purge out the leaven, expose, eradicate the leaven. Search every nook and cranny and cupboard and drawer to make sure your house is clean. In verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he goes on to say, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. And so we have this discipline sense where the person has refused correction. They've chosen sin rather than Jesus. They've shown, I love sin. I don't love Jesus. I'm an idolater in this area. And so we're told in very strong language, if this person is named a brother, they call themselves a Christian, don't even eat with them until they've repented. Why? Because sharing a meal is symbolic of hospitable and cordial, close friendship. And Paul says, you are not close while sin is unrepented of. All right? There's a, there's a cancer that's in the body and it needs to be cut off or the body will die. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are in the inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourself the evil person. Now, is there, there's a repetitive word here. Have you noticed it? Judge. All right, uh, that takes us to Matthew chapter seven, verse one, everybody's favorite memory verse, judge not, right? Judge not lest you be judged. I mean, people have no concept of the scriptures and yet they all know that Bible verse. Am I right? You've heard it everywhere you go. Don't talk to me about my sin. Judge not, judge not, judge not. But they could just continue reading the very same verse. Go to the next verse and read the rest of the chapter. And you see that Jesus isn't talking about never confronting each other in sin. The word judge there is to damn and to condemn. And he says, don't damn people and condemn people to hell. That's not your job. Don't crino them. Judge them to the point of condemnation. But the very same passage says, for with what judgment you use, it will be measured back to you. So judge in a loving way, judge in a self-examining way first, verses three through uh, five tell us, and taking the plank out of your own eye. He goes on within the same chapter in Matthew seven fifteen through 20 to say, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by your fruit. Nope, judge not, judge not. You said judge not. He has context. The whole of scripture is important. He elaborates on his judgment that it's a fruit type judgment. We can examine one another. All right. We make sure we're not wolves in sheep's clothing. We will know each other by our fruits. Verse 15, uh, 16 says later on in verse 20 he says by their fruits, you will know them. Second Corinthians 13, five says, examine yourselves to see if you are of the faith. Test yourselves. 
Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified, there's an examination that needs to take place. Now, Paul's example with this sexually immoral man, it continues in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, where he speaks of this punishment, and we're going to skim for the sake of time, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says that the punishment for this man was sufficient for such a man. And then he goes on to say, you ought rather now, now he's repented, you need to comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. So, the goal of church discipline is to gain a brother. It's to bring this man or woman to the point of confessing their sin and repentance and to be sorrowful over the sin. But then, verse 8, now you need to reaffirm your love towards him. All right? It wasn't to embarrass him and get him the heck out of Dodge. It was that they might come to repentance and now reaffirm your love toward him. Uh, it says there in verse 8. And then he goes on in verse 9, for I put this... Uh, for this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you're obedient in all things. So, Rory, why do we church dis- do church discipline here? Because the word of God mandates it. And Paul even used church discipline as a test to signify if the Corinthians were a faithful, Bible-believing, Jesus-following, Christ-exalting, Christocentric church. All right? The test is for us today as well. And we see the beautiful results of church discipline in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 12. We see in verse 9, just for the sake of time, that the sorrow within this church discipline time led to repentance. And in verse uh, 10, it says, Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourself. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. All things. In all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. And so church discipline was not only for the sexually immoral offender. But it was for the church itself who was in sin. By being open and receiving this guy. And never calling him out on his sin. There was discipline to the man. He was sorrowful. He repented. There was discipline to the church. They were sorrowful. They repented. Quickly just breezing through some scriptures here. In Acts chapter 20 verse 31. Paul was an example for us. He says that for three years, he never ceased to warn or admonish everyone night and day with tears. Don't ever warn anybody. Don't ever confront anybody on their sin. Paul did it for three years, night and day, just to the Ephesians alone. In Romans 16, 17, Paul urges the brethren, hope that's us, Note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you've learned and avoid them. Galatians 6, 1 and 2, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. Ephesians 4, 15, speak the truth in love that you'll grow up into the head in all things who is Christ. Speak the truth in love. Tell each other the truth. Confront each other in the truth. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 says, um, Withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition he received from us. All right? So withdraw from that one who's disorderly. Then he goes on to say in uh, 14 and 15, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. 
All right. Are you guys getting that church discipline is a New Testament affair? It's a New Testament church business. Titus chapter three, verses nine through 11, avoid foolish dis- disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law. They're unprofitable, useless. Don't dispute. Don't argue with each other concerning these things. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. You guys read the book of Galatians, and in chapter 2, verse 11, Paul tells a story about going to Antioch and seeing Peter there acting like a hypocrite, all right? Uh, And so Peter went up and confronted him to his face in front of everybody, and he says, because Peter was to be blamed, he was leading everybody else into hypocrisy, including Barnabas, the son of encouragement. There was a public rebuke to Peter, all right, by Paul the apostle. Well, Peter got his time as well. In Acts chapter 8, do you remember Simon the sorcerer trying to buy the Holy Spirit? And Peter turned around in public and said, your money perish with you. And he rebuked Simon in public. All right, This was stuff that happened in the book of Acts. Both Paul and Peter did it. In James chapter 5, James says, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So, Church discipline is exercised in cases such as the following examples that we find in Scripture. When a Christian sins against another Christian and it cannot be overlooked in love, steps are taken. When a Christian who professes faith lives in sin without repentance, the steps begin. When a Christian continually blasphemes God, the steps begin. When someone encourages or promotes false doctrine. When a Christian is a habitual doctrine debater. When a Christian will heed only false teachers. When a Christian is sincere but deceived. When a teacher is in moral sin or doctrinal error. When an elder is in moral sin or a doctrinal error. And Paul tells Timothy, don't receive an accusation against an elder except for two or three witnesses. And then he goes on to say, if an elder is in sin, let him be rebuked in the presence of the elders that the rest may fear. All right? So we elders, we tremble. All right? (laughs) Um, When a Christian appoints himself or herself to leadership, when a Christian is divisive, when a Christian is an idle busybody, when a Christian promotes legalism, when a Christian refuses to pay uh, to obey civil laws, when an alleged offended Christian seeks legal course, when a Christian has repeatedly rejected counsel by the church, when a Christian is not consenting in community, consistently in community, when a Christian leaves the church to pursue sin or heresy. These are just some examples of when we'll just begin to just speak and call and encourage and what's going on I'm seeing this you know and and it won't just be us and if you see that in us you come to us as well as John Lehman says other Christians will call this person to account for his claims of being a Christian they might even as a last-ditch effort to help him excommunicate him they love him too much not to they love this non-Christian friend and colleague too much not to and we've had to say that in church discipline times and just correcting times and say hey We love you. We're willing to put our friendship on the line to speak the truth because we love you. We love the church. We love Jesus. So, church discipline. Not only to be disciplined and corrected and discipled, little by little, Lord willing, it never comes to the excommunication stage. If we are doing our job considering one another in the little day-to-day times, 
We're just, we're like sandpaper, a light sandpaper that's just lightly going over us and just making us smooth, all right? But if we resist the light sandpaper, resist, a harder grain has to come out. A harder grain has to come out until finally the end of Matthew 18 of um, delivering one in 1 Corinthians 5, delivering one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that their soul might be saved. The worship team, come on up. We'll close in a song. And you know, um, this is not fun, these are the times that we as elders are like, oh, man, can we like appoint some other people in the church to have that part? It, it's hard. And there, you know, if you've been part of this church, there's been three different accounts where we've had a Wednesday night church discipline night. Um, and, uh, and it's interesting, this week, um, the three different people and, and sets of people that we've called out on their sin, that they've refused to repent. Um, this week, I've had um, uh, an uh, an experience with each one of these people. Don't see them ever. And then the week on church discipline, all three of them, I have encounters with them. And, um, and it looks like right now, no repentance in any of them. And so pray for them. Um, and uh, not easy, but necessary. Not about us, about Jesus, about his glory, about his name being holy and kept holy in his church. Let's pray. Let's stand. Lord Jesus, hard stuff, God. This is challenging stuff. Uh, much to be said. Hard to get into it in a one-hour sermon. But Lord, just coming down to the basics that those that you love, you chasten, you correct, and you do it lovingly and gently. And Lord, even in the excommunication times, Lord, it's with the heart to gain the brother. It's in love that we might be restored in fellowship. I think of these three different individuals, Lord, that, um, that have refused to repent, that we've called out in front of the church, that they've refused to repent, Lord, and, and in love, the way that we've called them out, Lord that, Lord, that you would draw them. Lord, that they would find themselves eating from the trough and saying, what am I doing? Lord, as we run into them, Lord, may we, plead with them to come back, to lay the sin aside. Lord, for the elders that have this unpleasant business sometimes in the extreme sense, Lord, give us love and grace and long-suffering and real wisdom. And um, Lord, let the congregation, may they fear in a good, healthy, reverent way. May they have just a, a desire to never sin against you and hurt you, Lord, and hurt your name and hurt the church and hurt each other. And Lord, may we take on this commitment, this obligation, this duty towards discipline, to being disciplined and disciplining others, to be disciples, Lord, for your glory, for the furtherance of your kingdom. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.